so much for being here. My name's Ava, and I'm a senior campaigner at Global Witness. Is it possible to turn the music off? No? Okay, we'll just do this to smooth jazz. <laughs> um, just a couple of housekeeping things before we start. We're not expecting a fire alarm, so um, if there is one, the fire escape is just at the back behind you. Um, and we've been fil filming some of the events, so if you prefer not to have your face on social media, um, then just come and tell Jess at the end, and we'll make sure to keep you off. Um, so for those of you who don't know much about Global Witness, um, for the last 25 years, we've been exposing human rights abuses, corruption, and environmental abuses, and often looking at the intersection between the three and using our investigations to campaign for systematic change on a global and national level. In the spirit of transparency, we first started talking about this particular event a long time before the general election was called. And when it was called, um, I was a bit uncomfortable about whether or not we should still carry on with it. Firstly, I didn't know if anyone would show up, so thank you all for making it through this quite grim December day to get here. Um, but I also wondered if it would be a bit weird talking about Russia and Putin on the night before quite a momentous occasion in UK history. But that was before the government decided not to release uh, the, in, the Intelligence Security Committee's report into Russian interference in the UK, even in the face of a huge amount of criticism. It was also before Open Democracy revealed a sudden surge in donations from Russian individuals and companies uh, to the Conservative Party as soon as Boris Johnson took power. It was before the Liberal Democrats' um, questionable use of bar charts in lots of their election material was widely named as fake news. Um, or well, it was before they did it in this election, maybe not before in others. <laughs> um, and it was also before the Labour Party and the Telegraph went really big on a leaked um, report looking at the US-UK trade deals that Reddit has just this week reported actually came from Russia. So all that to say, it feels incredibly timely and important that we're discussing this tonight on the eve of the general election. And we have such a brilliant panel to do that with. Unfortunately, Misha Glenny was supposed to be with us tonight, but he has been struck down by norovirus. Um, so in a way, I'm quite glad he's not here to make all of us sick, because that would be a really unfortunate um, Christmas for many of us, I think. Um, however, <laughs> we do have Peter Pomerantsev, um, he's based at the LSE's Institute of Global Affairs, where he co-leads a program countering disinformation and stopping the spread of hate and division on social media. He's also written two books, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible, and most recently, This is Not Propaganda, which weaves his own family's story of leaving the USSR and arriving in the UK amongst stories of information warfare from all over the world. We've also got Oliver Bullough, who started his career in Russia, covering the Chechen war for Reuters. He's a regular uh, contributor for The Observer and The Guardian, and he's published a number of books, including The Last Man in Russia and, most recently, Moneyland. A deep dive into the offshore world and the world's super-wealthy criminal elite. He's also one of the top tour guides on London's Klepto Tours, 
where you um, get to go and see all of the huge properties that are owned through a series of anonymous companies by a variety of shady individuals. Um, finally, we have Heidi Blake, who has led investigations at The Telegraph, The Sunday Times, and for the last four years at BuzzFeed, where Heidi and her team have transformed the online platform from being a great place to look up listicles of Christmas cat outfits to one of the hardest-hitting investigative media outlets, I think, globally. Heidi's just released a new book, um, all of which you can buy just over there afterwards if you'd like to, um, from Russia with Blood, which brings together a series of investigations she did with her team into mysterious murders that took place on UK soil, which she'll be talking about a bit later. But first up, Oliver, I'd love it if you could take us back to the 90s, maybe even the 80s, <laughs> and um, introduce us to Vladimir Putin, who he is and why it matters. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, I'm, I'm, this was originally something Misha Glennie was going to do. Uh, I'm going to do my best to, to obviously not be Misha Glennie, but to try and do my best to get somewhere near what he could have done. Um, you can read a lot of books about the rise of Vladimir Putin. Um, by a number of journalists, some of them better than others. I think they are often flawed by the fact that the vast majority of people who know why Vladimir Putin became president um, aren't going to talk about it. And the very small number who were prepared to talk about it didn't necessarily know very much. One of them, Boris Berezovsky, features in Heidi's book, and I possibly she may mention him later. Um, I'm interested uh, in him, and I talk about it in my, in my own book, um, available from all good bookshops. Um, from the perspective of kleptocracy and the perspective of using the way that the Russian post-Soviet elite used their control over the country to enrich themselves to an extraordinary degree and immiserate the rest of the Russians to an extraordinary degree as well. Um, and there is this remarkable episode um, featuring the general prosecutor of Russia, a man called Yuri Skuratov, and anyone who knows Russia now um, recognizes the weirdness of a general prosecutor who was prepared to take on the country's political elite. Um, at, uh, at the time, the general prosecutor was a genuinely sort of independent-minded being, which is something that has not been the case since Vladimir Putin has been in charge. Um, and he was very interested in a corruption uh, scandal, a construction scandal involving a company called Mabatex and an offshore vehicle in Jersey called Fimico, which he was looking into, and it seemed that the tentacles of this corruption scandal were going to reach not just to people in the government, but to members of Boris Yeltsin, the then president's family themselves, if not Boris Yeltsin himself. Um, and it was looking very, very dangerous for the ruling family indeed, particularly because this was in 1999. In March 2000, there was due to be another election. Uh, Boris Yeltsin could not stand again there would need to be a new president would have to stand for election. And if Boris Yeltsin and his entire team were blackened, their reputation was blackened, possibly the communists would come back and who knows what would then happen. Yuri Skuratov was a, a real and existing threat to all the oligarchs in Russia. And he needed to be got rid of. And then in February 1999, a man rather primly referred to on state television as resembling Yuri Skuratov was shown romping in grainy black and white with two much younger women, neither of whom he was married to. Um, and uh, essentially, it was demanded that he resign uh, because he had shown himself to be of low moral character for cavorting with two um, young ladies. 
he refused to resign um, and, in fact, denied that it was him. He said this was entirely stitched up. So the Kremlin wheeled out a man to authenticate the video. Who was this man romping with the two younger ladies? Um, it's a really excruciating video. Um, if you want to find it, it's available online. I, I don't recommend it. Um, uh, anyway, who was the man who resembled the general prosecutor romping uh, with two younger ladies? And they wheeled out an, an expert to authenticate the video, and the man they wheeled out was Vladimir Putin, then the director of the Federal Bureau of Security, um, uh, recently appointed to the job. And, uh, and so he said, yes, this is indeed Yuri Skaratov. Uh, may also be he who provided the video to Russian television in the first place. Um, and Yuri Skaratov was sacked. He was got rid of. A replacement was found who decided that there was no need to further investigate the corruption scandal. And Boris Yeltsin was in the clear. Um, it seems to me, uh, this isn't necessarily everyone else's interpretation, but it seems to me likely that at this point Boris Yeltsin decided that Vladimir Putin was a very useful man uh, to have in the presidency after him because uh, what Yeltsin was keen on was not being prosecuted after he stepped down from power. So I think probably what happened was they essentially came to an arrangement that Putin got to be president and Boris Yeltsin got to live out the rest of his days in peace, untroubled by investigations, which he did, um, as did the other members of his family. So Putin becomes prime minister uh, in September, uh, August 1999, uh, shortly after the Skuratov affair ends. And then a uh, new year between 1999 and the millennium, he becomes acting president, and then in March 2000, he is elected president, um, a position he has held more or less with brief interruptions as prime minister ever since. And uh, the way that he has transformed Russia um, has been profound. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes for the better, people get paid more, uh, more certainly more on time than they used to, um, and uh, his friends have become extremely wealthy. I think that the best business decision anyone could have made in the mid-1990s would have been to befriend Vladimir Putin when he was deputy mayor of St. Petersburg because they have all done exceptionally well. And many of them have bought properties in this fair city as well. We visit them on the Kleptocracy tour. Um, uh, sadly, we're not running them at the moment, mainly because my friend Roman, who actually gets around to organizing them, is currently living in Luxembourg. Um, but uh, if ever we do reorganize them, I assure you we will be pointing out um, the properties of, of the Rothenberg family, Timchenko's, Yakunin's, and various other friends of Putin who's done well out of him being president. So he will tell you, Mr. Putin, that he is uh, standing up for orthodox Christianity and conservative values and all these other things. He may well be, I don't know, but he's certainly standing up for his friends and their right to steal anything that isn't nailed down and to spend it on luxury properties in Knightsbridge, Kensington, and other parts of West London. Well, that's Vladimir Putin. Um, thank you very much for listening. Just before we move on, um, Oliver, could you tell us a bit about Moneyland and how that all operates and how that money gets from Russia to these big properties in Kensington? Um, yeah, Moneyland is, um, uh, if, you, if, if you, okay, brief geek detour, nerd detour, please excuse the next 30 seconds. If you chart all the investments in the world, right, they all come from somewhere and they all go somewhere. So you can list all the origin countries and all the destination countries for all the, de all the investments in the world. Now, rightfully, those two columns should balance because all the origin countries and all the destination countries have to be the same. The world is a closed system. Yet, mysteriously, they don't. Um, there is significantly more money in the world uh, being bought, which buys things, than there is money buying things. Um, it's weird, doesn't make sense. It's a gap of about 10 or 11%. Um, somehow, it's, it's like Mars is a significant foreign direct investor in the world. Um, 
How does this work? Well, it's because there is uh, beautifully um, a curious system by which you can own things without putting your name on them. I call it Moneyland. Other people call it offshore. But essentially, it is a system available only to people who can afford it that allows you to remove your name and any identifying marks from money in order to buy things with it. It's not cheap uh, to access this system, but once you have become a citizen of Moneyland, you can buy anything you like, and no one knows you've done it. Um, uh, thanks to the research from Global Witness, um, we know that almost 100,000 properties in England and Wales are owned offshore. Not all of them are owned by citizens of Moneyland, but a lot of them are. Um, the same goes for um, desirable residences in New York, Miami, Los Angeles, Paris. Pretty much any major Western city you can name um, is colonized by the citizens of Moneyland. Um, and who are the citizens of Moneyland? Well, sadly, most of them are people who have looted much poorer countries than ours. Nigeria, Angola, Venezuela, Russia, Ukraine, Afghanistan, Malaysia, you name it. They've been colonized by citizens of Moneyland. But they don't keep their money in their own countries because they don't have so much bling there as we do. Uh, so they move their money offshore, they stick it in Moneyland, and then they buy all the nice things that we have in our cities to sell to them. Um, and sadly, we do pretty well out of it, and um, the countries where the money comes from do really badly. Yeah, that's Moneyland. It's, um, it, it's, it's, um, it's like an extra country that should be in the United Nations, but it doesn't really feature on a map because it's everywhere at the same time, and yet, strangely, also nowhere. Thank you, that's really helpful. Um, so we have been doing really well out of Moneyland, and particularly through property. Um, but we've been working really hard with investigative journalists and at Global Witness with um, Transparency International as well to campaign for transparency in the property market, which, which would change all of that. So a public register of the real owners of anonymous companies registered in Moneyland so that people could no longer stash dirty money in UK property. Just just because we have an election tomorrow, do any yeah. of the parties have that in their manifesto? Some of them do. <laughs> they don't all, however. Um, so we really expected to see it in the last Queen's speech. Um, it was initially a David Cameron-led uh, policy, so the Conservatives have been behind it for a long time. Unfortunately, it mysteriously disappeared from the Queen's speech when Boris Johnson uh, became leader of the Conservative Party. It is in uh, Labour's manifesto, it's in the Lib Dems manifesto, um, and we'll be pushing really hard for whichever Prime Minister we get to include it in the next Queen's speech, which could be as soon as next week. So, from looting onto something a little bit bloodier, Heidi, it would be great if you could talk about, other than property, what else has been going on in the UK. Um, so, my team at BuzzFeed News um, back in 2014 started digging into the mysterious death of a British financier who had fallen from the fourth floor window of his Marlebone townhouse and been impaled on the raw iron spikes of the railings beneath. Um, and as we started to look at the death of this man, a man called Scott Young, we found that he was a multimillionaire in his own right and also a very high-profile fixer and financier for Boris Berezovsky, um, who Oliver mentioned, um, who was really the linchpin of a group of Russian oligarchs and dissidents who fled to the UK after falling out with Vladimir Putin um, and who had used his base in Britain to finance an international campaign of opposition to Putin's government. Um, now, Scott Young, the chap who fell from his window and died, was one of 14 people on British soil whose deaths we were ultimately able to link to, to Russia as part of a multi-year investigation by six journalists on both sides of the Atlantic. And nine of those individuals were very closely associated 
with Boris Berezovsky. Um, and what we found as part of that investigation is that those deaths, um, all of which have been, astonishingly enough, treated as totally unsuspicious by the British authorities, fit into a global campaign of targeted assassination, which Vladimir Putin uses to silence his critics and opponents around the world. Um, now, targeted assassination is a, a deeply Soviet form of statecraft. This is a tool that rested for many years in the hands of the KGB, the Soviet State Security Agency. Putin himself came up through the ranks of the KGB. Um, that, was, that was how he started his career before becoming deputy mayor of St. Petersburg. And by the time he'd made his way to the Kremlin via various dirty tricks, including the framing of Yuri Skiritov uh, for the, the romp with the two young prostitutes, um, he, he arrived at the Kremlin determined to use all of the tools he'd learned in his KGB toolkit to try to restore Russian greatness in the world. Vladimir Putin himself said back in 2006 that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical uh, tragedy to befall the world um, in the 20th century. Um, he is a man who deeply believes in that kind of totalitarian security state. And the use of assassination um, is... is a crucial part of, of his strategy for trying to enforce Russian strength in the world. It not only eliminates and silences his enemies, those who know too much, those who threaten Russian strength and his own government, those who seek to expose the, the crimes and the, the kleptocracy of his administration and of his cronies, um, and, and those who, who, whose you know, campaigns of political opposition seek to, you know, destabilize his government. Um, but it also sends a message to Western leaders that, you know, anyone who challenges the might of the Russian state has this to fear. Um, and, and so what our investigation began to untangle was the fact that despite this glaring pattern of targeted assassination on British soil, we ultimately established that US spy agencies had gathered intelligence connecting all 14 deaths we uncovered directly to the Russian state or to Russian mafia groups, which work very closely with, with Russia's security services. All of that information had been passed to the British authorities. And yet the British police and the British government closed down every single case and carried on cultivating closer relations with the Kremlin, um, cultivating Putin as a global ally in the war on terror, attempting to build an alliance with him in the Middle East to work with him on the Iran nuclear deal, major geopolitical aims and objectives, you know, which in, the, in and of themselves might seem important. But the price of that was to turn a blind eye to this trail of bloodshed, which really reaches all around the world. And some of these deaths in Britain, I mean, are so brazen that they beg a belief. Not only, you know, is it the case that the, the lawyers and financiers who worked in Britain to help Berezovsky expatriate his money from Russia died one by one in increasingly grisly circumstances after his arrival here. They fell from windows, they fell off tall buildings, they fell under tube trains, um, they were found hanged in mysterious circumstances. One of them perished in a helicopter crash a couple of weeks after telling his friends he was being threatened um, by individuals in Russia and that if anything happened to him, it wouldn't be an accident. Um, there, was, there was that pattern of suspicious death. Berezovsky himself was found hanged um, in 2013 at home with a blunt force injury to the back of his head and a broken rib, identified fingerprints all over his shower rail. Um, and a, an asphyxia asphyxiation expert who examined the wounds to his neck said that they were not consistent with hanging. It looked like he'd been strangled and then strung up. Um, and this, this individual posited that this was an assassination. 
Um, but you know, another individual, for example, a government scientist who helped gather evidence that, that led a public inquiry to point the finger at the Kremlin for the assassination of Alexander Litvinenko, he was found stabbed to death at home with two separate knives, one of which was in the sink, the other was close to his body. He had wounds in his neck, arms, chest, and stomach, and the cops closed that down and said it was a suicide with no investigation. Like, this is how brazen these killings are, and yet in every single last one of these cases, the government has done nothing. And not, in fact, d done nothing is wrong. What the government has done is shut down any investigation, and then in many cases, fought to obtain government secrecy orders that prevent any evidence being presented to the inquest into the deaths of these men related to their connections to government or their connections to, uh, to Russia. And so what we have here is a, a government cover-up on a large scale in this country. Um, the suppression of the Russia report is the latest in, in a long line of official cover-ups in relation to Russia's activities in Britain. Um, and so I'm really glad that you're all here and I'm glad that we're talking about this tonight because it's, it's urgent and Russia's activities in this country are escalating. Thanks. Thanks so much, Heidi. So as Heidi was saying, lots of the attacks that um, Heidi and her team have uncovered were incredibly brazen. Um, but the work that you've been looking at, Peter, is maybe a little bit more subtle, but also might affect all of us a bit more. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. That was such a powerful, powerful speech, Heidi. Um, um, I actually just want to loop back, though, to something that Oliver was talking about um, in regard to the rise of Vladimir Putin. I thought it was very interesting, Oliver, the way you partnered um, two moments, uh, a corruption cover-up and uh, what looks like a propaganda, maybe disinformation uh, event with this famous fuzzy video of a man looking like the prosecutor general. Um, and really, I find that these two things are very, very united. They're two sides of the same coin, corruption talks about a world where the budgets and the numbers on budgets aren't what they seem, where there's no kind of transparency around the way the financial system works, and disinformation is around all about how words don't mean what they say and images don't mean what they say, and things that you see online or offline aren't what they seem. So, so, so they're both two sides of the same coin and two sides maybe of one sort of zeitgeist. Um, I think they both point to international systemic crises which the Kremlin can take advantage of. Oliver's written beautifully about money land. Uh, I suppose I look at propaganda land, which um, was a little bit like the development of international finance meant to be a boon that came with the fall of the Berlin Wall, with the arrival of the liberal international sort of order that just like money would flow across borders and create more wealth, so information would flow across borders and create better democracy, better debate. Uh, censorship would fall like the Berlin Wall. And instead, we see this paradox emerging that the more information that we have hasn't led necessarily to better debate. We see more divided and polarized than ever. Um, the kind of metaphors we had, which were actually financial metaphors around the information environment, around the marketplace of ideas that in a more information we have, the best information would come to the top in some sort of you know, financially inspired version of rational choice. That seems deeply suspicious as a metaphor in an age where countless reports show that uh, you know, 
uh, lies travel much faster than the truth on social media, and where it's just so easy to produce disinformation. And if we look at the sources of disinformation, they often coincide with the sources of major corruption. I mean, in Ukraine, I'm looking at several cases you know, of, of major disinformation campaigns by oligarchs who are deeply corrupt and are protecting their wealth through these disinformation campaigns. Russia is su such an obvious example, it's almost too, too easy. But then in America, Donald Trump, I mean, you know, his utter disregard for the truth, I think, is, you know, a parallel or goes hand in hand and it probably enhances the fact that we still don't know about how money moved through his hotels, his own tax returns. These things, I think, are deeply, deeply connected. And, and the last couple of years, I've been thinking a lot what, what we do about it in the information space. Um, because take the very famous, I'm sure you don't need any background on it, the Russian social media campaign during the US election. Um, which we now know a lot about, thanks to the Mueller investigation and so forth. So basically, it's mass, uh, mass campaigns by covert social media accounts pretending to be Bob or Jill in Tennessee, but actually it was Ivan and Sveta in St. Petersburg. Now, there was a very funny moment when the FBI and Facebook, Facebook started taking down these fake accounts after the election, and one of the cousin... Uh, organizations to the troll farm in Russia, something called FAN, started saying, but what about our freedom of expression? A little bit like the money launderers that Oliver talks about, said, well, what about our, you know, freedom to move money around? That's a fundamental right. And you know, they're right. It's easy to giggle at their cynicism, but they're completely right. There's absolutely nothing in Article 19 of the Declaration of Human Rights, which is the article that protects journalists, the article around freedom of expression, that says anything about disinformation or lying as a, you know, as a sin, as a, as a, you know, as a legal offense. There's stuff about the freedom to receive information, to impart information, but nothing about disinformation. It's not a legal category. And it's been very interesting seeing the debate evolve as, you know, there's a growing awareness both of Russia's disinformation campaigns, ones from the far right, and most importantly, ones from our own political movers and shakers to respond to this crisis through censorship by saying, okay, let's start taking down disinformation. Um, Ali G, Sasha Baron Cohen gave a whole speech about this a couple of weeks ago. It was all about, we've got to start censoring. And so we're in this paradoxical moment where we have people who are calling for censorship in order to save democracy. And it gets very funny because the British government also uh, issued a white paper uh, around how to regulate disinformation and lies online, which was, um, you know, followed much later than, than the various camera initiatives to make uh, the financial transparent, but it was all about, you know, taking down disinformation and creating a new legal category called legal but harmful content. And the groups that were most up in arms against this were freedom of expression groups. Amnesty International, Article 19, are like, what are you talking about? There is, this is a, like a slide towards our own potential path towards authoritarianism. So we've got stuck, you know, we've got stuck. And I spent last year on a working group with American and European and British lawyers and, and academics and, and journalists trying to think, okay, how do we get through this? How can we start regulating this space? How do we make the truth more powerful than lies, but don't resort to censorship? And actually, we had, took a massive amount of inspiration from the work you do. Because we realized that the problem, if you look closely at it, 
isn't every piece of content. Yeah? The fact that somebody out there said a lie is not a big deal. The problem is that there's a covert campaign to push this en masse. Yeah? One person saying a stupid or false thing is probably not something that needs to be regulated. I'd love to regulate some of the stuff my friends write on Facebook. I'd love to call Ofcom and say, um, I think Oliver, not you, other Oliver, has, <laughs> has just written a piece of nonsense saying Putin is a defender of Christian values. Uh, can you take this down as bollocks? It's not going to work that way. With the amount of content created online, the idea you can regulate every piece is absurd. What is the problem is mass, non-transparent, coordinated behavior. It's not the one piece of content that's the problem, it's the troll farm. It's the fact that we're now going through an election where we don't understand where messages that are being targeted us are coming from. Parties, things next to the parties, something else. We don't understand why an algorithm shows us one piece of content on another. We don't understand if someone is online is a real person or Dominic Covings or Ivan. And it's a systemic problem that the Russians take advantage of and you have to solve it systemically. So that's what we need to regulate against and that means a radically more transparent internet. Anonymity is fine. Yeah, one person being anonymous for security for any other reason is fine. I'm being anonymous because I want to be. As long as you say you're being anonymous and why, that's absolutely fine. We're talking about mass campaigns which are deceptive. So that's what we're really hoping for. And some of that thinking was actually being put into the revised version of the white paper. And we really hoped for it in the Queen's speech and then it mysteriously disappeared. And we don't know what's happening with it. We really hope that this new bill, which would obviously be quite onerous for the tech companies, so the curators of this, uh, of this infrastructure, we really hope that this bizarre rumor going around London that our regulation of lies is being sacrificed for a possible trade deal with the US. I hope that is also a piece of disinformation because that would be brutally depressing. But I very much hope that there is an oven-ready concept that can be put into the oven um, to solve this issue. Um, and maybe we should start thinking about how we do this together. How do we solve the disinformation problem and the corruption problem together? Because they all circle around this idea of integrity and a society that's transparent. Thank you. Um, I'm going to open up straight away to questions from the floor. I think there's someone with a roving mic. Someone I go first. Hello. Hi, Hi my name's Ollie Courtney. I used to work at uh, Global Witness. Uh, thanks, that was super, hello. Hi, Ollie. Uh, that was super interesting. Um, I guess, like, really interested, Heidi, in your account of the, like, the, the unbelievably horrible episodes that had happened over the course of time. And it feels like what's different about the US context is, like, it's pretty obvious that the Donald Trump intervention has had a big impact, and whereas this feels like what you're describing has like spanned a lot of different administrations, and I guess the fact that we're on the edge of an election is quite interesting to think about. Like, what's happening here if it's not tied to one like particular individual? Why does why does it keep getting covered up, and how institutionalized is it? That I mean, that's kind of the big question I think about this. Um, what, what we've um, kind of, through lots of interviews with, with kind of law enforcement and intelligence sources and, and government officials um, who have, you know, the, the few who are willing to talk about this, has been that 
Um, there are a variety of reasons why successive administrations have not wanted to confront Russia over these deaths. Um, there is, there's the stark fact that Russian money and Russian investment has been hugely beneficial to the British economy, I and mean, if you want to look at it as a benefit, having billions of pounds of dirty money pouring in um, on a regular basis. But um, the fact that Britain has been such a great playground for super-rich Russians on the run from the Russian state, and also for, you know, and also those who continue to be friendly with the Putin regime and, and come here and spend their money on lavish properties and luxury cars and, you know, flotations on the London Stock Exchange and, and all of these things um, has, been a, has been a boon to the economy. There's also the fact that, that the West, you know, Europe in particular, is heavily dependent on Russian oil and gas. Britain has major hugely strategically important energy investments in Russia. At the time of Alexander Litvinenko's killing in 2006, Britain was the biggest foreign energy investor in, in Russia. Um, and then there's also, there's also the fact that we're kind of outgunned in, in the sense that Russia's, Russia's cyber capabilities in particular, it's, its ability to use all of the spectrums of state power to go after its Western adversaries and to try to de you know, destabilize the institutions and alliances of the West is a genuine existential threat to, to Western democracies. And so there has been a reticence to poke the bear and antagonize the Kremlin um, and a real hope that it would be possible to build an alliance with Putin and that he might be a leader who could kind of bring Russia in from the cold finally um, into, you know, into those those alliances. So I think, I think those have been the reasons. I do think that the attack in Salisbury um, last year on Sergei and Yulia Skripal was a big tipping point um, and that that coupled with increasingly overt Russian aggressions in the world, you know, the, the brazen interference in the US election in 2016 being one big example, just made it clear that there was no way that Putin was going to become an ally. Um, and so I think the response to that was much more robust. But, but up till that point, there has been a real reticence on the part of Britain in particular, but many Western leaders to tackle the Kremlin. I, I just want to say, I think one of the reasons this is, uh, is just Russia is much more interested in this than we are. Um, you know, if you look at the amount of wealth that is owned, I mean, Russia is an astonishingly unequal society. The top 1% of Russians own 51% of all the wealth in the country, which is by any standards, the most unequal major country in the world. Um, the amount of Russian household wealth which is owned offshore is also slightly over half. Um, you know, that's not a coincidence that those two figures are the same. The Russian elite owns its money offshore. So Russian, the Russian elite is deeply interested in what happens in Britain, in Switzerland, in the US, in the other wealth havens, because we are looking after their money. You know? So they are interested in us in the same way that Al Capone was interested in who was mayor of Chicago <laughs> in the 1930s. You know, it is an existential matter for them, whereas for us... You know, Russia's just, oh, shut up, Russia, already. You know, it's just annoying. Stop being annoying. You know, so it's, it is, there's a genuinely different aspects of significance for our government. You know, this is a, a, a 15th, 16th, 17th order priority for our government, whereas it's, it's up at the top, you know, for them. Santos, I'm the Europe editor at CNN. Um, my question to the panelists is, how does Russia's embrace of Bitcoin very recently in a post-sanctions environment affect this very topic, murder, misinformation, and of course, money laundering, and not necessarily in that order? 
Thanks. I'm just going to defer entirely to these two gentlemen on this question. Well, it's, it's a very interesting question. Um, I think at the moment, cryptocurrencies, obviously Bitcoin is one, I mean, you know, um, of which there are many, um, are, in, are not yet significant in the kleptocracy space, partly because the volume, the, the, just the volume of, of money, cryptocurrencies is very small compared to how much money is being stolen. There just isn't, isn't the money available. And also the liquidity of the markets is... is something that, that your kleptocrat's just not going to be prepared to rely on. If you're putting all your money into Bitcoin, you really need to be able to trust the exchanges, and they don't. Um, so at the moment, I mean, if you're rich enough, any currency is a cryptocurrency. So, you know, it isn't currently necessary for kleptocrats. Um, you do occasionally see, you know, there was a, a remarkable case of a governor in, in one of the, of the Siberian regions who had essentially turned over an entire university science um, campus into mining Bitcoin. Um, but that was more of a kind of cheap electricity play than actually anything else. Um, but the, the cryptocurrency is very big for Russian organized crime. I, I had an absolutely fascinating seminar last week with one of a, a reg tech company not far from here talking about uh, a, a, a crypto exchange um, which was you know, primarily used by Russian credit card fraudsters and so on and was absolutely fascinating. Um, allegedly used uh, by Russian credit card forum, um, just in case there's any lawyers in the room. Um, uh, but anyway, very, very interesting. But what was particularly pleasing uh, for me, or pleasing is possibly the wrong word, but, but kind of relevant for me, was that the structure by which the company was owned, which ran the, the, the crypto exchange, moving all this allegedly dirty money, was a Scottish limited partnership, which is exactly the same ownership structure that all the kleptocrats use. So, you know, old tricks used for new games. So right now, crypto is not really used for kleptocracy, but maybe in future. But, you know, the, 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 the way that Britain enables these crimes is the same. So we're in, we're in it. We always make our cup. And um, one of our colleagues at Global Witness has just done um, an investigation into another Bitcoin exchange that found exactly the same thing. It was all housed in UK limited companies. So I think by trying to tackle the, the traditional companies as we're doing right now, we're also going to start getting to that where kind of at the moment, smaller fish are playing. I'd like Jamie Bartlett's mom. I still don't know what Bitcoin is. <laughs> Yeah, um, thank you all. Um, I w certainly seeing the panel, I, there's no way I would have missed this. Uh, the only thing I do miss, of course, is Misha Glennie. Um, the name's Ewan Grant. I'm the former UK Customs Service intelligence analyst for the ex-Soviet states. Um, I first covered Wagner in February. That's February 1998. Uh, so this does all tally with Oliver's point about how long ago this has all been going on. I have two questions, one particular for all of you, but one particularly for Heidel. Um, isn't there a danger that there's an element of the grassy knoll about the 14 deaths? The one in particular I would ask you about is, has there been a red team review um, by you and your colleagues of the so-called suicide of the scientist on the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko. Because, of course, I mean, it is well known that the, the, the Russian denials 
are, are completely ridiculous, and Sir Robert Owen's inquiry nailed it. So why this gentleman died, but not others involved? The other point, which is the wider for the, for the whole panel, is what on earth, in the light of Danske Bank, which is, of course, now Swede Bank, SEB, Deutsche Bank, ING, and Uncle Tom Cobley and all, a lot of it going through London, um, second stage removed. What on earth are the European countries doing about this in conjunction with Britain? Because regardless of Brexit, we'll all have to work together on this. And how vulnerable... Do you see that the Russian... that the expulsions of Russian so-called diplomats from Berlin in relation to this Chechen killing could be the worm that turns. It could be the European Skripal. I have to say I don't see that yet. Thank you. Well, on the, on the grassy knoll point, um, I would say that the, what, what we've observed in the deaths that we've looked at is a very clear pattern of deaths um, you know, of, of in, in which people who have angered the Kremlin on British soil or who have helped um, Russian dissidents and, and enemies of, of Vladimir Putin launder their money into this country um, have died with alarming regularity in extremely suspicious circumstances. And what's really extraordinary is to look at that whole pattern of 14 deaths and to observe that despite pretty extraordinary evidence in all of these cases, including that of Dr. Matthew Puncher, the scientist you mentioned, the government has not investigated. And what we're really saying is there ought to be an investigation because... In the case of Dr. Matthew Puncher, um, the evidence there is that he had, um, he, he had been the scientist responsible for measuring the dose of polonium in Alexander Litvinenko's system. And the amount of polonium that he detected um, is only, only originates in one place, which is the Mayak nuclear facility in Russia. And so that evidence was, was key to connecting the Kremlin or connecting Russia to that killing. It's a polonium in Russia is a state-controlled substance. Um, Matthew Puncher, in the months directly after the public inquiry um, made the accusation that the Kremlin had likely ordered Litvinenko's killing, was traveling back to the Mayak nuclear facility in Russia um, to help uh, a, a transatlantic team of scientists contain a, the, the impact of a series of nuclear spills at that facility. He, he and his colleagues observed that they were being followed while they were there. When he returned, his mood was dramatically altered. He'd been plunged into a very deep and pr profound state of anxiety. He felt that he'd made some mistakes in his research, which his colleagues didn't understand. Um, and shortly after this, he was found stabbed to death with two separate knives, which is a highly unusual method of suicide. Suicides by multiple stabbings are vanishingly rare. Um, now, given his connections to Russia, his connections to the Litvinenko case, and the fact that shortly after his death, Russian state media itself broadcast news of his death and asked whether it was connected to the Litvinenko case and raised the possibility that maybe he'd made a mistake in his research and that might have been why the Kremlin was falsely accused of the killing. Given all of that, what we would say is there ought to have been a proper police investigation into whether there was foul play in that death. Coupled with the fact that we know that US intelligence agencies passed MI6 classified intelligence files, we were able to obtain readouts of some of those files linking that death to a suspected ass a Russian assassination. In totality, we'd say that amounts to grounds to suspect Russian involvement and that there should have been an investigation. And over to you, Onda. 
I just want to briefly add to what Heidi was saying, which is, you know, obviously incredibly serious and very important. Um, in, in, in the Litvinenko case, which we now know, thanks to the heroic efforts of Marina Litvinenko to demand a public inquiry into her husband's murder, um, we now know that this was not just one assassination attempt, but three assassination attempts. Two assassins came from Moscow. Um, we, we, we know what they tried to use. Lit polonium-210, probably the most poisonous substance on Earth, um, used with astonishing um, carelessness, splashed around like aftershave. Um, but what I think is the most remarkable thing is on the front, on, in the Sunday Times, before Litvinenko had even been buried, an unnamed cabinet minister at the time, a Labour government, was quoted as saying, the Russians are too important to fall out with over this. A British citizen killed in London with the most deadly substance known to man, and it's too important to fall out with them over this. I mean, you know, we saw, you know, Theresa May, when Home Secretary, held out against a public inquiry until after the invasion of Crimea. You know, it was really bad. Really, I mean, really bad. So if, I mean, if you, if you listen to what Heidi is saying and you're going, oh, grassy knoll, um, our government has previous for not caring, you know, and they were forced by Marina Litvinenko's efforts to finally hold an inquiry into Alexander Litvinenko's murder. But do not think that just because there hasn't been inquiries into the others that nothing was going on either. Um, and just to add, in terms of what's happening across the EU, um, my colleague Rachel at the back might have some more to add to this. She heads up our Brussels office. Um, but as a result, actually, of the Panama Papers, so way before the Danske Bank scandal, um, there is a huge amount of legislation currently moving through and all EU member states um, will be getting rid of anonymous companies on January the 10th if they do what they're supposed to do, which hopefully they will. Um, but it's going to be a real problem moving forward, I think, because the UK, well, if we, if we Brexit, because the UK has played a really positive role in that forum of pushing the anti-corruption agenda forward. So we'll be looking to other people and other countries to, to start doing that. Um, can I see everyone who wants to ask any more questions just now? Please raise your hand. Great. If I get the microphone to this woman with the hairband, please. Uh, thank you. So my question is for you. Um, actually, in the beginning of the presentation, you mentioned that you hold the microphone. Sorry, you mentioned that the Tory Party has received many grants from Russian individuals. Um, I suppose my question is twofold: is is it necessarily sinister to receive donations from Russians, or are all Russian donors sinister? And do we understand who are the top? let's say five or ten donors, and how many of them are actually Russian dissidents? Because we know that London is home to many Russians who are actually fleeing the Putin regime and who've made London their sanctuary. Thanks. Um, and other people might want to jump in as well. No, absolutely. And we don't think it's bad that parties are able to receive donations from individuals. I think uh, the Open Democracy article that I was talking about um, noted that it was quite a sudden surge and they were very, very big donations from a number of um, very exposed figures. Uh, and, it's, and it correlated time-wise with the decision to not release this Russia report. Um, so I think there were questions asked about that. Does anyone else? I mean, I do think it showed remarkable confidence by the Tory party to suppress the publication of the report and a week later accept £200,000 from Lubov Chinyukin. I've got nothing against her personally. She is, by all accounts, an absolutely great person, and her husband did a very good job as a minister in Putin's government back in the early 2000s. But 
it is still kind of amazing. I mean, just, you know, the ballsiness not to wait a week. I mean, anyway. <laughs> I mean, you know, give, give us all, it's like one of those online things. Give us all the confidence of a party prepared to accept that kind of donation. So, yes, he was a minister in, the, in his early life, but afterwards he tried to set up an opposition party and he was funding opposition candidates and he tried to be an opposition himself. He ended up fleeing to the UK. I don't know, it's said he fled to the UK because of his opposition work. So would you not consider him a dissident? I, I'm, uh, I personally, I'm not sure the word dissident works anymore. I think it worked in the Soviet Union. I, I don't think it really applies anymore. I mean, possibly, uh, yeah, I don't think it really works anymore. I think we need a new term. I don't think it dissident is a, is a word that applies so much to, to, to you know, it, it's too often used in my mind for um, people like Mr. Berezovsky um, to, be, to have any sense anymore. You know, we're not talking about Sakharov anymore or, or you know, or, or Gorbanyovska. You know, it's, it's, it's a different, we're in a different world now. Hello, hi, uh, uh, Rob Duncan. Um, forgive me if my question is slightly oblique. I was just interested if, um, particularly maybe for Heidi, um, is working for, do you find your work under BuzzFeed is any different, easier to do than it was uh, with the Sunday Times, for example, or, or mainstream media? Do you th is there, is there a, I don't know what comment you might have on that, whether there's any more freedom you're allowed or... Um, yeah, BuzzFeed is a really incredible place to work. Um, I think the thing I value the most about it is its guts um, and, you know, and also its willingness to tackle huge, sprawling investigative projects like this, which took us years and you know, were kind of complex and, and, and at times you know, risky in a variety of different ways. I think um, this is the sort of investigation that would have been pretty difficult to get backing for a, a more you know, traditional... Um, birth, and so I'm I'm really really grateful for that, and I, I also think it's it's wonderful to work at a place which is so innovative and dynamic, and where we have all sorts of different ways of telling stories like this, and and also we we reach a really interesting and more diverse and more interesting audience, I think, than um, you know I sometimes felt we were able to reach um, at other places I've worked. That being said, the Sunday Times was a fantastic place to be as well, and you know very grateful for my time there. Um, but yeah, Buzzfeed forever. I think you're also recruiting at the moment, right? We are, yeah. Uh, we're looking for a new deputy global investigations editor. If anyone's interested, slide into my DMs. Hi, Daniel Odes. Um, I have a question about um, Russia and the links to the far right around the world. Do you think these links are opportunistic from the point of view of the Kremlin, or there's something deeper and more ideological? Um, yeah, so we've tried that quite a lot. We, we sort of looked at the German elections and the Swedish elections, the European parliamentary elections, and um, um, th there is kind of like, a, we were looking more at the sort of the, the narrative coming together um, rather than the financial links, which are, you know, fairly established now. I would call it um, kind of like finding what, you know, mutual interests and mutual allies um, it's very unclear whether the sort of Kremlin propaganda, both overt and covert, um, kind of moves the dial in support for the AFD in Germany, who they're very close to. But what they seem to be doing is following kind of like a, a mutual admiration kind of society. 
Uh, maybe, the, you know, I think the argument would be, look, you guys form a mutual admiration society with human rights NGOs in Russia. Well, Nazis, they're the same as human rights NGOs. We're going to back them. And the support comes a little bit through finance, but almost kind of like, you know, AFD leaders or far-right leaders will go on the German version of Russia today. Sputnik, the German version of Sputnik, um, was massively biased uh, towards the AFD during the 2017 elections. Uh, and then online, sort of Russian bots and trolls will kind of support AFD narratives around migration, that you know, everywhere there's huge amounts of migrant crime and this kind of stuff. Um, and then in return, they'll, they'll throw in something about Ukraine or Syria, and the AFD will then repeat that. So it seems to be kind of this kind of dark public diplomacy. Um, there might be some ideological factions in it. I mean, it's ideological in the sense that we assume the Kremlin is quite interested in disrupting the international order as it is, and so are these guys. So there's a, a coming together of interests. My sense is, though, the overall mood is less common turn 1927 uh, and much more incredible suspicion on both sides and a lot of cynicism and a lot of trying to get money and favors. And they would dump each other at a second if something different came along. That just seems to be the nature of these kind of flows. There are bits of, of um, the Russian elite who are maybe quite ideological, but they're not, I don't think they get to make sort of, they, they don't get to make the weather, they help to execute it. Um, it's all very, what's interesting about it, it's very, very light touch, it kind of appears, disappears, moves, um, and keeping up with it can be, can be quite, quite difficult. Um, but, um, but it's that, it's sort of an economy of information favors. Um, but, uh, and so the, the point might not be, if we're talking about its effect, the point, the point might be not to move the needle, the point might be just to create these relationships which have much bigger political impact later. Um, and this might be a bit of a geeky additional question, but how do you keep up with it, literally? What, what are you, you need doing? a mix. So, so a good project in this space um, will do a mix. So you need the data analytics, the sort of people like Graphica or... or I mean, actually, around this area, there's like every second company is coming up with ways to use automated techniques to track narratives and strange behavior online. Uh, you need good old-fashioned content analysis, uh, and then you need investigative journalism and kind of an understanding of the political background. Uh, and you have to put all those together. Um, there is no magic algorithm you can write that will kind of like, aha, we have caught the latest bot attack. Um, I think that, that myth has been sort of debunked somewhat. Uh, so you need, you need a kind of a, a full-spectrum approach. And, of course, the magic is, again, where it comes, when it connects to the illicit money. That's where it gets really interesting. And, and we've seen that with the AFD. We've seen that with Salvini in Italy. Um, we can go on and on and on. Uh, so, it's, again, it's about bringing the corruption research and the disinfo research together. I think we've got time for two more questions. <laughs> Great. Hi, uh, Daniel Stanley. Uh, thanks. Thank you very much for the talk. It's very interesting. Um, I just want to bring it back to the prospects for political action after tomorrow. Um, I think personally, I'm quite convinced that the Conservative Party is compromised. Um, we've not even talked about Echo uh, Cheleg, the treasurer of the Conservative Party, who is responsible for vetting the, the financial donations, is himself entangled with a a whole lot of oligarchs and donations. And so I think for me, there's, there's plenty to suggest that there'll be no more action from that side. But I think um, you talked about there's been some quite promising um, in the Labour manifesto that there is the promise for a transparency of companies. But I was just thinking back to the Squipal affair and some other things that happened in the last year. 
there also seems to be a sort of latent uh, affinity or naivety there. I remember Jeremy Corbyn suggesting that the samples of sarin were sent to Russia for to be uh, verified. We could ask them if they were, were guilty. So I, I'm not sure if you feel like that might have some influence on how um, what Labour's potential uh, attitude to this might be in the future. Well, the Labour manifesto is very clear. It, um, it wishes to support uh, a human rights first um, um, kind of uh, foreign policy. Um, I find that a little bit of odds with some of the councillors around Corbyn who have openly advocated for ideas that Stalin was right to break some eggs in his projects in the Soviet Union, which don't seem to me a human rights first approach, but I, I very much hope that they're loyal to their manifesto. They included Syria in their manifesto and hard action, and, and I hope that, that we'll see that. Unlike you, um, oh, I'm not sure who's going to win tomorrow. I mean, I really don't know. We might well end up with, with, with a Corbyn government. Um, look, on the Tory stuff, look, we have a problem full stop with how we think about lobbying and political campaigning. One of these, you know, the phenomenon of London emerging as this global capital and capital of globalization, which has good things and many, many bad things, um, was that we never really got, to, you know, got around how we're going to legislate and regulate and track lobbying. I mean, America, they do have a system, and it's quite clear, and, and it's tracked, it, and even though you could say it's very, very corrupt anyway. But uh, we kind of haven't come up with that. So again, I think this is a systemic issue. On the Russia stuff, I was with Oliver when all these first sort of microaggressions in the grand scheme of geopolitics were happening from Russia and was likewise appalled at the, um, I think the word that you English use is a lily-livered um, response from the Tory governments. Um, now it's, I have to say, pretty, it's pretty robust on the kind of FCO strategy towards Russia level. There is no Russia strategy. There's much more of a recognition from the FCO compared to the, you know, the French or even the German governments around this. So actually in Europe, Britain's always been a voice uh, that, that, that has, you know, at least in terms of rhetoric, said that it had a problem with, with some of Russia's geopolitical decision making. Um, but um, so maybe I'm not as, but maybe I'm, I'm putting my, my faith in sort of systemic long-term interests and actually we live in a world where, you know, you know, thin men make thin decisions or, you know, where it's all down to the whim of, a, of Boris tomorrow. But there does seem to be a systemic understanding inside the British Civil Service that Russia is a, a problem now. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, you know, in a way you can make, I mean, not, I'm not feeling very enthusiastic about the choice tomorrow. Uh, I'm gonna have to put that out there. Um, the, the, you know, it's almost like we have a choice between people who, who, who are happy to do the bidding for ex-Soviet oligarchs for money or people who do it for nothing. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, it's take, take your pick, which is worse, really. Um, but, um, you know, I, I had a, uh, a, again, just while I'm depressing you, the, the um, I, I, a contact in Whitehall emailed me six, seven weeks ago asking me to put together a memo for why corruption is bad because they felt that this was a case that they badly needed to make to the leadership of the, of the ministry in question. Um, you know, uh, which didn't make me very happy, I'm not going to lie. Um, but there you go, you've got to do what you can with what you have where you are, as um, Calvin said in Calvin and Hobbes. Um, and, um, you know, so there you go. Right, so can I steal that? I'm going to steal that line, that's so good, I'm sorry. He, he, he sources it to Winston Churchill, but I don't think... No, Winston the line Churchill about like, people doing it for money or for free. Right, right. <laughs> I thought you meant my Calvin and Hobbes quote. Can I just say, it's a lie that I'm friends with Peter on Facebook. I only have one friend on Facebook. Disinformation, <laughs> fake news. Um, at the back. Um, 
Hi, Graham Barrow. Hi, panel. Um, a simple question. Um, we've talked about Danske and SEB and Swedbank and historic money laundering, 200 billion Danske. Um, do you think that money is still being laundered today? And if you do, what sort of sums is it still those sorts of levels or is it less or is it more? That's, you're Graham Barrow and you know way more about this than all of us put together. <laughs> what do you think? This is Graham Barrow, he's a legend. <laughs> That's really very kind, and I don't think I am. Um, uh, I, I think I'm an obsessive. Um, I think it's, it's still going on, and I think it's still a really huge problem. Uh, and I had a conversation today with somebody in Uzbekistan, and what really depressed me was that all of the companies he was coming up with were connected to all of the companies in Turkmenistan and Azerbaijan and, and all the rest of it. Um, and it all connects, but, but, but I think it's a conversation we should have very loudly and very clearly, and this is a great opportunity for you as a panel to say it's a big problem and we should be doing more about it. I mean, I, I had a really interesting... Graham hosts a podcast called The Dark Money Files. Um, go on Spotify now and subscribe, um, or your podcast app of choice. Um, uh, I, I, was, I, did, I attended a really interesting seminar recently discussing the role of Dubai in the international financial system, um, there have been triumphs in a lot of them, thanks to Global Witness, in the in the fight against um, the movement of dark money and dark assets around the world. You know, the Kimberley process against blood diamonds, you know, equivalent processes against gold from conflict zones, and so on. Um, you know, which has really forced places like Antwerp and, and Geneva to really clean up. Sadly, a lot of them that assets have now gone to Dubai. Um, you know, so there's an aspect of displacement, whereas things keep moving and they go into these sort of you know, black holes, and then the money emerges and it comes here again. So, you know, it is a very, it's, you know, whack-a-mole, hydra-headed issue that we need to face. Um, but, you know, there has been progress. You know, in, in, in many Western countries 20 years ago, uh, a bribe paid overseas was a tax-deductible business expense. Um, it isn't anymore, you know. So I, I sound really depress depressed and depressing, and I am and I will be, but the... You know, but there is progress. You know, we are, the glass was 2% full, it's now 8% full. You know, that's good. Um, and, and I think that's the way we need to look at this because, you know, I have a, a, a really good, uh, uh, a friend I work with in Ukraine um, called Daria Kalanyuk, who runs the best anti-corruption charity in Ukraine called the Anti-Corruption Action Center. And, um, and I asked her one day how she gets through the day, uh, considering how depressing everything is. And she says, well, you can't think about um, the fact the enormity of the challenge you know it's not possible you need to think about what am i going to achieve today and if you keep achieving things every day sooner or later you know you're going to cause serious inconvenience to some seriously evil people um and that's the, the way to be so yeah i mean frankly the election tomorrow is a pretty invidious choice um uh the um city of london is doing lots of invidious things and if it stops doing them dubai will probably continue but hey you know it's not a reason not to keep pissing off gits um but, but I just, th that touches on something that, that I confront a lot, um, and I remember, which is social in indifference. I mean, politicians will care about this when they feel there's some votes in it. And I remember, on the, on, I mean, I, I haven't dedicated a, a decade of my life the way Oliver has on, on money laundering, but I was kind of on the fringes of, of his brilliant work at the start, and I remember doing pieces and trying different approaches. So firstly, there was the moral one, like people in Russia and Ukraine are dying in hospitals because you know, the health minister is moving his money here. And zero effect, too far away, too hard to imagine them, there's tragedy everywhere, who cares? Uh, then we did the security one. 
you know, this is actually a threat to our national security. There's a, a buy-in into the political parties. Um, that surprisingly, that got traction among, you know, a small group of Ed Lucas plus one, and, but it didn't really go further. Um, and kind of hybrid threats weren't on the landscape then, anyway. Like, if you talk about security, it was like terrorism, nuclear weapons, corruption, who cares? Um, and, then, and then the other thing that kind of bubbled through, the only time I actually saw this story grip the front pages, it did actually have a little bit of um, a very small, but maybe I noticed it because I am Russian, a slight racist tone. So it was like, oh, look at those dirty foreigners buying up the nice house in Belgravia. My daughter can't buy the flat in Notting Hill the way I did. And that, went, that did go to number one. And it was tinged with a... Now, actually, I don't want to take it as... A, I think Brexit has deep reasons, but a little bit of it is sometimes about immigration. And um, I'm going to fed into that atmosphere, which made me feel very uncomfortable. I was like, is this the only way we get this issue on the front page? And I don't know whether we sold that. The same thing with disinformation. It's very hard to get people to care. That in, in my book, I, I, I follow this incredible journalist who went inside the Russian troll farm before it attacked America and was just attacking Russian dissidents. And she risked her life and her sanity and her well-being to go there and get the information and get the proof. And she comes out and she shows it to the Russian opposition. I'm talking about, like, the pro-government people. And the Russian opposition is like, meh, disinformation. It happens all the time. And we've normalized corruption. We've normalized these industrial-level lies. And that is maybe the greatest victory um, the people who produce them have, 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 have created. And I think maybe, maybe we need to be smarter. Maybe we need to be doing a lot more social research, a lot more understanding about why people should care about this and where is that connect between public opinion and, and these issues that we care about, but sometimes in a very lonely way. It's a real shame Misha Glennie isn't here tonight because one of the other things that really moved the corruption issue, at least onto the front pages, was McMafia and the BBC show um, that was on last year. To the extent that Ben Wallace, who was the security minister at the time, actually said it was McMafia and his constituents coming to see him and saying, is this really going on, that really forced him to push the issue. So I think the more that we can do with the mainstream media is also um, really exciting. And I'm not quite as cynical as some of these guys about the general election tomorrow. Um, there are some really exciting and interesting policies, um, so I'm not going to bore this whole room with them, but if anyone is interested in those, I'm happy to talk to you about it after. But just before we finish, I promised I would hand over to one of our founding directors, Patrick. Thank you. Thanks very much. And I wanted to, to thank the panel and all the fellow travelers we've been with over the 25 years of our existence, drowning myself out, um, who've done so much and, and are fighting such uh, great odds. Um, I wanted to pick on one of the last things Oliver said, which is about pissing off gits, um, because this is what we do. This, this is our history, and it's kind of very much the way we look at it. And the election tomorrow, um, really threatens to undo some of the gains we've made. Uh, when Trump gained power, um, when he took over the White House, within three weeks, he had undone an act that we and fellow NGOs had spent about 15 years trying to get in place um, around uh, transparency in the uh, oil and mining business. Um, and we stand to lose the gains we've made, for example, with property registers being opened up in the UK, with uh, corporate registers being opened up in the Crown dependencies and overseas territories. So we're going to need to work harder than ever. And yes, this is a funding touch. Um, yeah, so 
if anyone here can help us, if anyone has got contacts who could help us, um, please do uh, contact us. Find one of our team here. Global Witness people, wave hands wherever you are. There are lots of them around. Uh, come to me, come to Ava, whatever. Um, because we could really do with your support. So if after the election tomorrow you are thinking of moving money offshore, please don't. Um, <laughs> yeah, just, just move it our way. Uh, uh, <laughs> but don't tell the fundraising thing. We have an ethical fundraising policy. So, um, uh, but anyway, yeah, thanks uh, so much for coming. Thank you, everyone. Um, and I, I find it hard to get shocked these days, but I really have been shocked this evening and I've learned an awful lot. And thank you, everyone, for coming. Thanks. but not for me and Global Witness is there are some wonderful books over here and some wonderful authors to sign them so please come and buy them and there's also food and lots more drinks so please stay and have a chat